All right, let's turn to the book of Haggai. Been there now for several weeks, third from last book from the end of the Old Testament. Find the Gospel of Matthew at the very beginning of the New Testament. Go back just a couple pages, and we'll find Haggai. Today we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Pew Bible there in front of you, the Black Bible, page 869. Haggai. You know, when you have multiple children, you start to reflect and look back, you realize that there are a lot of little kitty things that you've done so, so, so many times. You know, we have gone for walks so many times. We have dealt with strollers in and out of the car so many times. We have um, changed more diapers than I could even calculate. You know, sleepless nights, been woking up in the middle of the night. All of those things that kids bring to your lives, and then you think about having multiple children, and there's, there's so much of that, and I, I thank God for it. Those are good memories, and it's helped uh, shape my life. And one thing that I was thinking about this week as I was studying Haggai is how many times we've been to the doctor, to the pediatrician, how many times we have taken our children there, so many times, and... Um, when you go to our doctor's office, our pediatrician, you, walk, you, you, know, you go upstairs to the second floor and you walk down to the very, very end of the hallway and you go in this first door and as soon as you enter into like this little, little lobby, you can go right or left. If you go left, that's where you go if you're well. They got a sign on the door that says, well children. And then if you go right, there's a door there and there's a sign on that door that says, sick children. And that's always kind of been weird to me because I always wanted to go left. No matter how much our kids had everything you could think of, I wanted to go that way. Well, and you know why? Not because I was thinking that we're well. I knew we were sick. There were sometimes we went there like um, feeling like, man, we can't take any more. We've got to get better. But you know that if you go into the sick, right, you're now, what, exposing yourself to all of the sickness, right? You kind of hate the idea of, man, do I really have to go in there? And you walk in there and all the people are like, <clears throat> you know, there's so much of that going on in that sick room and you're like, do I really need to go in there? Do I have to? And there's probably been a time or two, you know, Val would never do this, there's probably been a time or two where it was me and I'm like, we're, we're just going in the well side today. And you get over there in that sick side and you're just thinking to yourself like, these kids are sick. They're contagious. You try to sit as far away as you can from anybody else. And you start thinking like, the well side isn't like that, is it? And you just kind of know this naturally. Over here on the sick side, listen to me. You know that there are all types of germs floating around in here that are contagious. And you could potentially become sick just from being in that room. Now, I'm not a doctor or a nurse, but I think that's right. On the other side, though, you can't go over there and get well. It doesn't work that way. The sickness, listen, is contagious, and the wellness isn't. Now, being on the well side, you may keep yourself away from the sickness, and that may uh, make you stay well, 
but you can't get well if you don't believe me so far. We couldn't just go over to the well side and say, hey, which one of y'all are feeling really good today? And somebody raised their hand and said, come here. You come over here and kind of make this whole room well contagious. If that would work, man, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? But that doesn't work. You know that. If a well person was to come over here to the sick side and hang out in there, what is most likely to happen? Well, they're probably going to get sick. But what's definitely not going to happen is the presence of the well person is not going to make all of them well, right? Everybody follows that, right? Now, I know you've never thought about the doctor waiting room that deeply before, but that's true. And in a real sense, This is the conversation that God is now having to his people in the book of Haggai as we move through chapter 2. This today is the fourth message from God through Haggai to his people in this little book. There are five. And the last one we're going to see next week. This is the fourth time God speaks up through Haggai to them. And he's going to point out to them why we are becoming more and more sinful And he's going to point out to them why we aren't becoming more and more holy or godly or like God. Because one is an easy, contagious, slippery slope. The other must happen supernaturally. It's not the same. Read with me, if you will, at chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. And we'll read all the way to verse 19, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Can somebody with some holiness touch somebody else that doesn't have holiness and create holiness? The answer, pretty simple here, the priests answered and said, no. Holiness is not transferred in that way. And I think that you know that. The Old Testament laws would affirm that. Verse 13, then Haggai said, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Everybody see that? Uncleanness can be transferred. Holiness or righteousness cannot. Look at verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. 
Now then, consider, and there's our word. If you remember from our first sermon in in Haggai back in chapter 1, I pointed out to you that God is telling them to consider their ways. Think about how you're living, where you're going, what your priorities are. Think about what must you be wrapped up with that you are not prioritizing the rebuilding of God's temple. Remember that was chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5, consider your ways. Chapter 1, verse 7, consider your ways. And now here's our word again in chapter 2, verse 15. Now then, consider... From this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider, it's the fourth time we've seen the word, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, there's the fifth time we've seen that word, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Haggai does a lot of dates, doesn't he? Next week, you'll see at verse 20, he's about to speak up again a second time on the 24th day of the month. And he's given all of these dates. Our passage begins today, 24th day of the ninth month in the second year. Uh, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, it says that stuff all the time. The very verse before that, verse 15, 24th day of the month in the sixth month, all of that. And Haggai is wanting to point out the timeline here. Clearly, the timeline must be important. The problem in the book of Haggai is that the temple of God, which represents the presence of God, the work of God, the kingdom of God, all of that has been destroyed, and God wants them to rebuild it, and they're not rebuilding it. Their priorities are out of place. And so God has been calling them to repentance, calling them to proper God priorities uh, that they would rebuild it. And you remember back in chapter 1, they said, okay, and they started rebuilding Well, here, if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 10, we're about two months, all right? We're about two months into the rebuilding of the temple. And God speaks up again through Haggai. God speaks up again through Haggai and has another message for them. And it's this message about things being transferred, holiness being transferred or sin, uncleanness being transferred. And he sets them up with a nice little analogy. He says, if somebody's carrying a holy meat and they touch any of these things, does it become holy? And he even asks the priest because they know, and and their answer is no. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. He says, okay, well, if if you're unclean because you've touched something that makes you unclean, like a dead body, and you touch something else, does it become unclean? They're like, yes, it does. And okay, I understand that. And then he says the big heavy thing in verse 14 This is how my people are. This is how you are. This is how this nation is. And this is how everything you're doing is. Folks, this is a huge, huge message on the foolishness of good works. Of thinking that you've earned something before God. It doesn't work that way. You don't have a bank account 
which you are storing up goodness so that one day you might present to God enough goodness that God would say, wow, I guess you're pretty good with all that goodness. I guess you're pretty good. You don't have that. That's not real. That's not true. In God's mind, that's not a real thing. You do have a bank account that is collecting all of your evil deeds, all of your sin, and God is fully aware of it. And you may be saying here today, well, that's not fair. And you know, I'm not sure if that's right or not, but I'll tell you this, if you're thinking at all that that's not fair, that I'm pretty good and all that, then you really have overestimated just how good you are. You've underestimated just how bad you are. For the Bible does not tell us, and my experience does not tell me either, that we are as good as we think we are. Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't even tell us that we're, uh uh-oh, just lost my page. The Bible does not even tell us that we're bad. You know how bad the Bible tells us that we are? That we're dead. The Bible doesn't say we're so bad. The Bible says we are dead. If you're not familiar with death, that means no life, zero life, which means that everything you ever thought was good and everything that you thought had been deposited into that bank account that might impress God one day with all of your goodness was not good, is not good. Now... Let me pause right here for just a second. Time out. I know and you know that compared to other people, there is goodness. I know that in the world's eyes, there is goodness. I know that. Don't get me wrong. I think y'all are great people. I'm not trying to ruin your self-esteem in and altogether here today. I'm not trying to say that you're not doing good for your home or for your school or whatever. Hey, me and Val like to volunteer at the local school too. We're trying to do good in the world. But that is a good uh, uh, comparingly, comparatively to everybody else. It's not a good that earns you something in God's eyes. The Bible makes clear that God alone is good. Nobody else is good. Why would you call somebody good? God is the standard for goodness, and the Bible even says nobody does good. So make sure we understand that, right? Everybody got that? I know you do good, and I'm proud of you for doing good. I want us to keep doing good, all right? But we're talking about good in the eyes of God that earns you something with him that might bring you into a relationship with him. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are now separated from God. We cannot please God. We cannot even believe God. We uh, have nothing to bring to the table. And so, it's natural that a dead, sinful people do that, and do that more and more, and it snowball effects. That's why the Bible says that bad company corrupts good morals. That's why it's pretty common. You can watch a sweet little kid, cute little kid grow up. Before long, man, they're a mess. That's why it's a fearful, fearful thing to watch a kid grow up and hit the teenage years and turn into a young adult. And if there is not some supernatural power of God that changes their dead heart, guess what they will be? A sinful person. 
It's the way it goes. That's what the Bible says. Sin is contagious. You ever talked to somebody before and you said, man, I didn't know you talked like that. And they said, man, I'm sorry. I just, man, if you knew where I worked and how everybody talked there, you'd know why I talked that way, right? Man, you hear these conversations all the time, right? You, you know about people that uh, hang around with certain people, or, or a lot of times it's not the workplace. A lot of times it's the home, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, this isn't an excuse. I'm just saying, this is true. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, the, the reason that kid's like that, or the reason why that child's like that, or that college student's that way, or the reason why, you ought to see who they were raised by. You ought to see the home that they come from, Right? And my point is just that, that sin and these sort of things are contagious. They, they rub off on each other, right? And you will become, with bad things and disobedience to God, you will become more and more like that that you are around. It happens. But the flip side of that is that righteousness and holiness and a heart that loves God does not happen like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I know y'all are thinking that there, you, know, you can also hang around with good people and become that way. And I hope that you can see through. There may be a little rubbing off, but hearts are not changed that way. I hope you know better than that. That's why parents, okay? That's why parents have to believe the gospel. That's why parents have to know what the Bible says. You're not doing your kid uh, a, a, a ticket to heaven just by giving them Christian friends. You're not getting your kid to heaven just by bringing them to church. Not at all. And surely you know this. Now, if you're keeping them away from, from some uh, really sinful people, you may keep that contagious sinfulness uh, out of their life a little bit. You might have some restraint and some guard on that. But just by getting them around some good things does not make somebody good. It doesn't work that way. That's the whole point of this passage in Haggai. See, here's what's happening. God told them to rebuild the temple in chapter 1, and they said, well, we don't think it's time to rebuild the temple. And God's eyes were like, what? You mean it's time for you to build your house? You got these nice wood panel houses. I mean, you're spending all your time and your money and your effort, and it's like a really big deal to you that your house looks nice, but it's not time to rebuild my house, God says. And God says, you better consider your ways. There's a reason why you run around busy all the time, hungry all the time, thirsty all the time. There's a reason why you work your butt off and you got no money to show for it. It's because I'm opposing you right now. I have put a blockade in the middle of your successful life. And you know what the blockade is, God says? It's me. I'm stopping you from any blessing in your life because you're neglecting me and my priorities. And God says, well, here's what you ought to do. Right up there on that mountain, there's a bunch of wood. You better run up on that mountain and get some wood and come back down here and rebuild the temple. And you know what they said in chapter 1? All right, we will. They turned back, and they started doing that. And God saw it was awesome, and God says he's going to bless them, and so they started rebuilding the temple, okay? Well, now they're rebuilding the temple. They're, last week, we remember he brings up, well, how does it look? Those of y'all that remember the temple before, how does it look? And they're a little bit discouraged because the, the new temple they're rebuilding doesn't look as awesome as the original temple. And he tells them, be strong, be strong, be strong, keep going. Remember my covenants and remember my presence and I will be with you. And he, he shows them that the, that the treasure is God, it's not the temple. The satisfaction is God, it's not the temple. 
And then two months pass, and now he brings up today's message. And so they're rebuilding the temple, but there's a thought here in God's mind of why are you rebuilding the temple? Are you rebuilding the temple because you think obeying me is simply the way you become good? Or are you building the temple because you are back now trusting me? In other words, he's asking, why are you obeying me? This is the age-old question that churches and Bible believers and Christians need to be about. It's not what you do, but it's why you do what you do. And it's interesting that they're two months in, and then he raises that question. Why are you rebuilding the temple, in other words? Do you think that's making you holy? Does building a temple make you holy? Surely you know it doesn't. Does building a temple remove all of the uncleanness and the filth and the sin that's in their lives? Surely you know it doesn't. The only thing that can remove your sins is the grace of God and the love of God. God sent Jesus to die on the cross for you so that if you will turn to him and all out surrender to what Christ did, then God will forgive your sins. There is nothing in that equation. There's nothing in the good news gospel message that says, do this good and it will earn you forgiveness. Do this good and it will make you clean. The Bible does not teach that. The Bible says that if you will look at Christ crucified, buried, and risen, victorious over sin and death, and you will believe that, then God will forgive your sins. And once your sins are forgiven, God gives you the holiness of Christ, and you are then holy simply off of who Christ is. That's how you get it. And so that's why he's asking them this. He's trying to see what are they doing. Look back to verse 14. So is it with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord. So with every work of their hands. Look at this. What they offer there is unclean. What he's pointing to is before they were building the temple, they were still doing the things that God told them to do. They were still offering their sacrifices. They were still trying to obey. And God is raising the question here that if you're doing these things over here in obedience, but you clearly know of these things over here that are disobedience, you're kidding yourselves if you think that this good overpowers this bad. That's not the way it works. 90% of obedience with 10% of disobedience still reveals your heart is not fully surrendered on the Lord Jesus Christ. To have a love for God is to bow your knee, your heart, your life and say, God, I surrender all, forgive me of all my sins and give me a new heart that loves you. And He's pointing that out to them. This reminds me of the passage in Acts chapter 5 where you had those two people that wanted to give a huge offering to the church. Remember that passage? They wanted to give a big offering. They had sold some land in Acts chapter 5, and they told God, God, if this land sells, we're going to give you 100% of the money. That's what they said. They made that promise to God. Well, they sold it, and 
got a big old chunk of money, came to church the next day, and they gave 50% of it. Now, let me remind you that the Bible's telling us this, but during the story, nobody knew this. You know, if you came here today and wanted to put a $10,000 check in the offering plate, I don't know what's happening in your heart and mind. I'm just going to stand up and cheer if I heard about that. And I don't really know what, God, what God's thinking. But you've got to know that you're not living at all, not one bit, to impress me. And you're not living at all, not one bit, to impress the church or impress our finance committee, or impress our budget. Not one single bit. The only type of worship that there is, is the true and honest heart who cares about the Father in heaven that sees in secret. That is the only type of worship. And they gave 50% to the church. And I'm sure everybody was celebrating, like, man, we had a huge gift given today. Somebody gave a lot of money. I mean, they're just, I mean, they're just awesome. You know, they're just, they're just givers like that, you know. They had that land. They could have taken it for themselves. They could have done this. They could have done that. I mean, those people are just great. Love them. You know what happened that day? This is not Old Testament where y'all think God's different from the New Testament. In the New Testament, God struck them dead right there at the church. And you know what Peter said to them? Listen, you know what Peter said to them? Why did you lie to God? He wasn't concerned about how much it was. We're not concerned about how much it was or is. We are concerned about your heart. God is concerned about your heart. Church, you can hide from what we think. You can hide from looking somebody in the eye. You can hide from an accountability conversation. You can hide from showing up on a Wednesday night or to a Sunday school group or just a little prayer meeting. You can hide from those things and think, if I don't ever see him or see her, then I don't have to deal with it. You cannot hide from God. God is watching. God cares. God knows, he sees through and through, and he loves you. And he's not going to be okay with you going through the motions. I love this about Haggai. He gave them that strong message. They started rebuilding the temple, and he speaks up and starts saying, hey, if you, uh, if you start carrying some holy meat and you start touching something else, does it become holy? No. If you start touching something unclean and you become unclean, you touch something else, does it become unclean? Yes, okay, that's how y'all are. Don't think that you become clean off of the good you do. And don't think that you get rid of the uncleanness because of the good you do. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. So then he says to them three times, consider, consider, consider. Verse 15, now then consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. In other words, before, before you started building it, okay, that's what he's talking about. Stone placed upon stone. Before you started building it, how did you fare? So how, how were things going? And the answer's not good. When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. In other words, God was preventing them from success. God was in their way. Now, I'm not able to say directly 100%, but if you feel like you can't catch a break, that there's something working against you, and you keep throwing it up to karma, just consider it might be God. 
It might be God blocking your blessing. I'm not going to be able to say if it is or if it's not, but it might be. And the reason why is because you're thinking, I'm trying, God. How many times have we heard that? Man, I'm trying, God. You're thinking that the trying should be building up in your bank account with God so that God would bless your trying. That's not Christianity. It's not. The only thing you ought to be crying out to God is, God, I surrender. God, forgive me. God, have mercy on me. God, help me. I got nothing to offer you, God. I'm tired of saying I'm trying. I'm tired of of thinking that I've done good. I'm tired of thinking I'm good enough because those are not Christianity. But if you will say to him, God, I just surrender everything, and I'm going to trust Christ. I'm going to cry out to you and say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is awesome. He's good. He died for my sins. He rose again. He gives me life. He loves me. It's just all about Jesus. If you will do that, the Bible says that God now works for you, that God is then blessing you, that God is taking care of you, that God is leading you. Notice what he says here, verse 15, the very end of it. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I'm sorry, verse 17. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. And look what it says. Yet you did not turn to me. Because when you don't understand Jesus, here's what happens. And and everybody in the room knows people that right now are thinking this way. Well, man, I was trying. I mean, I was trying to straighten arrow. I was trying to read my Bible for a little bit. I was trying to go to church, and I, I've, I've tried all that. It just wasn't working out for me. So I'm just going to have to start being my own man. I'm going to have to take matters in my own hand. I have to cut out everybody in my life that's negative, and I'm just going to start doing my own thing, right? And you, you hear people say that all the time. And God says, that ain't going to work. Never has worked. And it's not helping you. It's actually getting you further away from me. And God says he sees that. And God says he's aware of that. And he's telling his people that. So what God wants you and I to see is that when we don't know we're close to God, when we don't feel that we're close to God, when life is troubling for us, we should not cause that to go away from God. This is one of the things that I feel like I'm saying all the time and telling to people all the time. Do not let anything, especially your trials, especially your hardships, cause you to go away from God. When life gets hard, go to him. When you start hurting, go to him. When life has hardships, go to him. Learn to turn toward God. And so often it's the opposite. The unbeliever says, when things go good, I'll get back focused on God. The believer says, when things are rough, I'll get back focused on God. So the believer then says, no matter how things are going, good or bad, I need to turn back to God. Because God is the only answer. God is the only solution. He's our only foundation. Foundation. He's our only satisfaction. And he's pointing out to them that they still did not turn back. So verse 18, he says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider this. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree, they've yielded nothing. See what he's saying? 
He's saying, you started walking in obedience, but was your heart there, or were you just doing it because I told you to? He's challenging them to make sure that what they do is fueled by why they do it. Literally, you and I need to think about that with everything. When you go spend your money this week, is this for God's glory? Can I do this by faith? Should I buy this? Should I not buy that? When you spend time with your family this week, you need to be thinking to yourself, what should this be like? What should this family moment be like? What should this uh, marriage be like? What should this... How should we talk? How should we treat each other? What's the goal here? Is Christ in view? When you go to work this week, I had a college student in our church just this morning say, hey, wish I could, sent me a text, hey, wish I could be there, not able to be there this morning, I got this going on. I wrote back, hey, give it all you got for the glory of God, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work hard is for the Lord and not for man. I sent that back to them. I don't know what they're doing this morning, but whatever they're doing this morning, whether it's sleeping in, whether it's working a job, whether it's whatever, hey, get Christ in view. That is Christianity. Even rebuilding the temple, which sounds so incredible, gets a fourth message from God's prophet Haggai that says, why are you doing that? Where's your heart at? What's the purpose? How you feeling? Is it worship to me? And part of the reason why you've still got the barn full and the seeds there and the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree and all of that there, and yet you're still not seeing the blessing is because it must be from the heart. What good is a temple without people whose heart love the God of the temple? What good is a church without the people that are a part of the church who have a heart for Jesus. You know, we're living in a weird time to be church people, aren't we? Right? I think every one of us, except for the young people that don't know any better, it's a weird time to be a church person. Churches are dying like crazy, closing all the time, Literally, churches are closing by the thousands here in the USA. Thousands. Churches are closed down. Church buildings are getting sold. Church properties getting sold. And it's a loaded conversation about why it's not necessarily altogether bad. I think for the most of us, we think that's bad. But I wonder how many of those people were proud of themselves for going and proud of themselves for how long they've been there and proud of themselves for how much they've given and proud of themselves because hey, they had a building there named after them and proud of themselves because they had a, have a, a pew inside that church that was named after them that they sat in that same pew for, for all those years. And people are all proud of themselves. And what they think is they've got a big old spiritual bank account with a whole lifetime of storing up goodness in it. And I don't know, but I just wonder how much of these dying churches are filled with people whose hearts aren't in the right place. I wonder, honestly, and I don't know, but I wonder if those people have hit their knees, literally been on their knees, crying out to God for mercy. That Christ is all they've got. Or I wonder if they say things like, man, I don't know what happened. I mean, I tell you what, I didn't quit going. I just kept giving. 
I always do this and I always do that. I'm telling y'all, that's not the heart of the person that's focused on God. The heart of the person that is focused on God is a humble, broken, desperate, I need mercy, I need forgiveness, and I find it in Jesus. And so that heart is now in love with their Father in heaven, with Jesus their Lord, and with the relationship that God as the Father and Jesus as the Lord King Shepherd leads them through this life because that's all they got is Jesus. That is Christianity. Nothing that we have in and of ourselves. But at the very end of this passage, as you can see, the very end of verse 19, he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. So what is happening is through Haggai's preaching, God has turned their heart back to them. God has turned their heart back to them so that they aren't just rebuilding the temple, but God has used Haggai's messages to cause them to see that just rebuilding the temple is not it, but a heart that is focused on the Lord for forgiveness, for love, for, for mercy, for, for, uh, for, for salvation. That heart is the very thing that God is looking for, and God will bless that, and the passage ends with that. And our passage that you'll see next week is God saying, now I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'm about to make you a signet ring to the rest of the world. I'm going to show the world what redeemed people look like because they love me. They're not proud because they rebuilt the temple. They're not proud because they come to church here. They're not proud because they gave some money to the church. They love God. And people that love God love to serve God. Tonight, I'm going to preach a sermon tonight that there's a phrase in the Bible of those who serve well. And there is a whole category in the world, in the church, of people that love to serve. Not what's in it for me. But what can I give back to a God who has already given everything for me? That's a real person. There's a real heart like that. And at the very end of our passage, he starts to show us that. I'm going to bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. Well, what God is pointing out to them, listen, is that he was not blessing them when their heart was not focused on him. You cannot play God. You cannot say, God, I went to church today, or God, I did this, or God, I've been doing enough good. When are you going to pay me back, meet me halfway? You don't do that. And God is getting them to wrestle with where is my heart in this. God wants us to just totally settle down. I want to read this verse to you from Hebrews chapter 3 that we came across a few months ago. Listen to this. It says, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Yes, there are people, church-going people, Bible-reading people, there are people in our midst that are on the brink of falling away from God, drifting into evil and unbelief. They're not there now, but they're on their way toward an evil, unbelieving position. Then he says this, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, listen, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. See, what happens is just a little bit of sin causes your heart to get a little hard. And once it gets a little bit hard, it allows you to sin a little bit more. And once you sin a little bit more, your heart gets a little bit harder. 
And the next thing you know, listen, there are things in your life that are not honoring God and you're acting like it's not that big of a deal and the only thing you have to fall back on is, well, I still do these good things. And that's the whole point of why he wrote Haggai. That doesn't work. And so we're in this bad, spiritual, negative, dark formula of defaulting into, well, I still do some good, at least I'm still going, or something like that, and that's not the point. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. Do you love Jesus? Do you follow Jesus? Are you surrendered to Jesus? Are you crying out to Jesus? Do you love him and follow him? That's what it's all about. And if it's anything else, then we're in a bad spot. James Montgomery Boyce says it like this. Sin hardens the heart. And the heart that is hardened sins even more. That's a good quote. God knows that. He's telling that to Haggai. He's telling Haggai to tell that to the people. Don't you get distracted by the good things in your life. And don't you dare get distracted by thinking that the good things in your life are earning you something with God. May your focus be on Jesus, who God put on the cross for us. Let me go back to my opening talk about the doctor's office with the sick side and the well side. If you're in the sick side and you're hanging around with the sick people and all that contagious stuff, you know, it can just spread. We got seven people in our house and as soon as one person gets the stomach bug, you know what I'll hear from every one of you all? Hope it doesn't spread, right? Because we know that that's how that works, man. It can be contagious that way. And is there any way to just throw some wellness in there and make it all go away? Well, not in a person. The reason why we go to the doctor's office, and the reason why we'll go sit in the sick lobby, is because, listen, they got something in the back there. Outside of me, outside of Val and our children, they've got something in the back there that they can put into us and make us well. Right? They've got a shot an antibiotic, they got something outside of us that can make us well. You know what God says? The sin is contagious. We sin and then we sin more. And then we get around people that sin and then we all sin more. The righteousness, the holiness isn't contagious. But I got something way outside of you that you're not going to find by introspection You're not going to find by going to a self-help. You're not going to find by looking in the mirror. I got something way outside of you. My son, Jesus, who is well and well and well. He's always been well. He's never been anything but well. But for one dark three days, I made him sick. He was sick. So sick that I killed him. So sick that I buried him. So sick that he was gone for three days. So sick that the world went dark. So sick that his followers freaked out and were scared to death. But on three days, he was back well, and the sickness was no longer in sight. And he tells us it's done forever. But that wellness is completely out 
inside of you. You're not going to get well spiritually from you. You cannot get well spiritually from you. But you can get well by turning your life over to Jesus, by crying out to him, by asking him for forgiveness. And God, through Haggai, shows his people this. He asks them, and he says, consider. Folks, let's be honest about where we are as a church. And the church is simply the people. Where, where is your heart? Is your heart focused on Jesus? Do you love him? Do you follow him? Does he reign over you? Have you bowed your heart down to Jesus? Is that where we're at? We need to be thinking about is the heart of our church, is the heartbeat of our church Jesus? Or is it perhaps this pride that thinks we do some good and we ignore the bad in our lives? That can't be it. We need to be thinking about Jesus. If you're here today and you've not committed your life to Christ, let's do it. If you're here today and you think, well, a long time ago I committed my life to Christ, but you're not committed to Christ, get focused. We hear God through Haggai shaking his people. He answers Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the book of Haggai and these messages that he keeps giving God, thank you for the question of, is it contagious? And Father, may we learn here today that getting well is not contagious. It must be a healing. It must be a new life that only you give. Father, lead us now to respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.